Everybody's asking, where's Terry? I'll explain why I don't think Falcons GM Terry Fontenot should have that prominent a role in the search for a new head coach. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back, everyone, to another illustrious episode of the Locked On Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of Locked On Sports Atlanta, your team every day. Today's episode is brought to you by PrizePix, the easiest and most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Go to prizepix.com slash locked on NFL and use code in all lowercase locked on NFL for a first deposit match up to $100. And guys, if you don't know me, I'm your very humble host, Aaron Freeman, a.k.a. Mr. Drew, a.k.a. Sirius Black, a.k.a. Mr. A.k.a. And of course, I appreciate each and every one of you that is an everydayer of this podcast as it makes it your first listen or watch of the day. And if you want to become an everydayer, Throughout the 2024 offseason, make sure you subscribe or follow for free on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. So today's episode, we'll be talking about what I think the Falcons problems have been under Arthur Blank and Rich McKay and whether those guys are responsible for it. We'll talk about the true downfall, the, the bad bet that Arthur Smith made, and it's not necessarily the bet on Desmond Ritter. But we'll start things off talking about, you know, what a lot of people have been talking about these last couple of days since Monday's postseason presser between Rich McKay and uh, Arthur Blank uh, that did not include Terry Fontenot. And we'll get into that answering a question from Mike, a.k.a. Grim57 from the Lockdown Falcons Discord, link in the description below. And he asks, how many other NFL organizations don't let the general manager hire the head coach? Terry Fontenot will be, quote unquote, included in the conversation, but Blank and McKay will lead the search. Also, Rich McKay hasn't gotten the axe also. McKay was hired after Bobby Petrino's season and hired Mike Smith, Quinn, and Arthur Smith. McKay was the point person on the new stadium, but it seems like he needs to stick to that side of the organization. So answering your question, how many NFL teams don't let the GM hire the head coach? Pretty much all of them don't do that. Right? And again, I, I won't pretend to know the ins and outs of every NFL team, but I spoke about this earlier this week with my guest Jeff Schultz and looking at the 14 current playoff teams, I don't think a single one had the head coach hired directly by the general manager. And I'm looking around the rest of the league. I don't feel like any of the other active coaches in the NFL are, are that way. Right. Now you certainly have certain teams that have general managers that maybe are have more influence in the room, so to speak, than others do, you know, maybe Philadelphia's Howie Roseman might've been a bigger part of the process there than maybe some other teams is uh, uh, GMs were in their head coaching hire, but the sort of notion of, the sort of handpicked head coach being the choice of the general manager, that's not really the case anymore in the NFL. That's, you know, and that's what I discussed with Jeff, right? You know, that basically head coaches and GMs now are kind of co-leads in these organizations, right? The, the, the Frankly, the days of, you know, the GM being sort of the top decision maker, the big decider in an organization is a relic of the past, right? Like you, you there's a lot of young new GMs in the league that have come in the league in the last couple of years. Um, and a lot of these guys are like pro and college scouting directors and not really like guys that can sort of dictate. Right. I think there's like five teams that have GMs that have been in their current position for a decade or more. That's the Saints, the Seahawks, the Eagles, the Rams and the Bucks. Um, and I thought one of the more poignant things that Rich McKay and, and Arthur Blank said in their Monday presser 
was about how, you know, NFL teams work today, right? That these are basically billion dollar corporations and sort of the sort of mom and pop where uh, only a handful of people are sort of running the show. It doesn't exist anymore, right? You know, like these corporations that are NFL teams, you know, they're no different than Coca-Cola or Frito-Lay or whatever, but you know, the product that they produce is 17 football games. And while I'm not a business guy, you know, all these corporations have this board and, you know, the owner isn't really the CEO. The owner is more because they're not really doing this, the day-to-day stuff, right? They delegate that to stuff. They're more like the founder or the chairman, the, the biggest shareholder. And so when it's time for a big decision to be made, what they say goes because they're in that, but they're not running the, the day-to-day um, of the company. The, the, sort of the face of the company is really the, in the, the, what the CEO is kind of is basically the head coach. And basically, again, using this business analogy, if you have a bad quarterly report, if your product, you know, you don't win enough football games, isn't good enough, you know, they're going to push you out and get a new CEO. And then, you know, there's other board members, and that includes the GM, like a Terry Fontenot, that includes team presidents. Like every team has a team president, like two thirds of the league have team presidents. And the other third of the league, basically the team president is the owner, the son of the owner, the daughter of the owner, right? But the Falcons have two team presidents, one for football, one for business. Greg Beatles is the business guy. He got hired last year. Rich McKay is the football side of things. And Rich McKay sort of is the head of the football side of things, but he doesn't really run anything, right? He's not really making football decisions. He hasn't made football decisions really for 15 years, right? He's basically the guy that has boots on the ground that oversees the day-to-day stuff to make sure, you know, everything's running smoothly, making sure that the building's not on fire. But you know, part of the reason why he has that role is because eight years ago, Arthur Blank, you know, was forced to deal with some health issues due to prostate cancer and basically had to take a, a step back from doing the day-to-day stuff of all his businesses, including the Atlanta Falcons. And basically McKay's role is to be that sort of liaison, that eyes and ears for Arthur Smith to, to, to you know, oversee the day-to-day stuff, but he's not really making the decisions, right? You know, when you have these billion-dollar corporations, someone has to make sure that these things are running smoothly, right? You know, because this stuff matters, right? Billions of dollars are at stake. So, you know, when people say, like, why is McKay still here? Like, I don't understand why that's a question, right? And, you know, some of your facts, Mike, are are a little wrong, right? McKay was hired in 04, so he was responsible for the Moore and Petrino hire. Then he was stripped of football decision makings after that Petrino fiasco in 08. And he basically spent the next decade, as you say, running the business side of things, getting that stadium built. And then after the stadium got built, he was like, you know, I got that itch to get back to the football side of things. But he's not a decider. He's not a decision maker. Right. But I do think he should be front and center, the point man, whatever you want to call it, as part of the process to hire a head coach. Because if you put him, Arthur Blank and Terry Fontenot in a room and ask, hey, raise your hand if you've hired a Hall of Fame head coach. Rich McKay is the only person that's going to raise his hand because he hired Tony Dungy. Raise your hand if you've hired a Super Bowl winning head coach. Rich McKay's hand's going to go up. John Gruden. Raise your hand if you've hired a coach that has gone to the Super Bowl. McKay and Blank will say that because Dan Quinn. What has Terry done? What, you know, Terry spent basically a decade or 15 years at the Saints organization, essentially as a pro scout, basically in middle management. Why should he be leading the charge for the Falcons coaching search? And I, I don't say this to bash Terry Fontenot. I think he's a very important component of the Falcons organization, right? That I don't think he's the driving force behind every personnel decision, but those personnel decisions don't really happen without his approval. That's the job of the GM. But like, I see all this like 
foaming at the mouth anti or pro Terry Fontenot sentiment from some of the fan base, some media folks. And I don't think it's really merited, right? I think if you're paying any amount of attention, you know that the Falcons personnel moves are have largely been coach driven over the last three years. We've talked a ton about all these players that the Falcons have signed that had previous experience with past coaches. We, we spent all of last year joking about how the Falcons kept bringing all these ex bears. Was that Terry Fontenot? Was that Ryan Pace? You know, Ryan Pace being the, the shadow general manager that we joked about. And so, uh, you know, Terry, again, Terry's fine. He's fine. He's doing thumbs up. Right. But there's no reason for people to be fired up about Terry Fontenot pro or against. And I know going back to the conversation we had with Jeff Schultz earlier this week, like, you know, he mentioned that, you know, the Falcons should be hiring that sort of top guy that can make those football decisions that can, you know, do that stuff that can be more involved in Rich McKay. Right. And I didn't really push back because I got to make a tight 30 on these episodes. And I don't think today is going to be a tight 30, but you know, my follow-up question to Jeff would have been like, who's really more qualified out there to do that job than Rich McKay, Bill Belichick. Right. You know, good luck with that. I say, right. You, you know, you might be still mad about a, a poor coaching hire that Rich McKay made 17 years ago, but you know, you're ignoring the terrible offensive coordinator hire that Bill Belichick made a year ago. All right. Much worse, in my opinion. Again, maybe I'm biased. <laughs> the Bobby Petrino hire. At least there was justifiable reasons for that. Matt Patricia, Joe Judge calling plays for the first time ever. There's no justifiable reasons for that. But like again, Rich McKay's not really making those decisions. He's not that overseeing guy. He's basically making sure the building's not on fire. Um, and I don't think that role should be due, you know, the head coach or the GM should have that role. They got bigger fish to fry. They got, they got to make sure the product in this billion dollar corporation is good on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. And so someone in, in the discord responded to Mike's question, basically saying, let Terry cook. And I'm like, you can have Terry in the kitchen. He can, he can cut some veggies. He can boil some water, but I don't think he should be the head chef. Right. You know, no NFL teams are doing it. So that being said, I've seen a lot of rhetoric over the last couple of days, you know, in weeks, you know, Rich McKay, Arthur Blank is a problem. I don't really agree with that, as I'm seemingly explaining. But the Falcons do have a problem. And it's the ten tendency that they get 90% of the way to their goal and they can't get over that hump. But it's not because some individual like Rich McKay or Arthur Blank or Arthur Smith or whoever is holding them back. It's because I think the nature of football makes it very hard to get over that hump. And I'll explain that as we continue today's Locked on Falcons. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp and you know, it's the new year. We get obsessed with how change it, how to change ourselves rather than just sort of expanding on the things that we already do right. And therapy can help you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make the changes that really stick. I've done therapy with better help. It's taught me things like I can control what I can control. And I think if you're thinking about starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely done online. It's much more affordable than traditional offline therapy. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist, usually within 48 hours. And you can switch therapists at any time thereafter for no additional charge if, you know, that person isn't the right fit for you. So celebrate the progress you've made with BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com slash locked on and you'll get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash locked on. So continuing today's episode, want to plug the Locked On Sports Today 24-7 streaming channel here on YouTube, getting all the biggest stories in all the leagues across the world, across the nation. And if you want that local flavor, check out Locked On Sports Atlanta's 24-7 streaming channel to get, you know, the lowdown on all your Georgia and Atlanta-based sports. 
So constantly here, you know, seeing the comments on many of my videos this week, you know, Rich McKay and Arthur Blank are the problem. You know, some people focus on McKay. Some people focus on Blank. A lot of people focus on both. Now, the Falcons do have a problem that has occurred over the 20 years that those guys have sort of overseen this organization, right? And that problem is that they have a tendency to get 90% away to their goal, whatever that is, and they struggle to break through that last 10%. And whether we're talking about, you know, coaches reaching, you know, the conference championship game and not getting that over the hump to the Super Bowl, coaches getting to the Super Bowl, not getting over that hump to win the Super Bowl, coaches getting to the playoffs and, you know, like Mike Smith in his early years, not winning a playoff game. Or in this year's case, Arthur Smith getting 90% of the way to making the playoffs, but not getting over that hump to get there, right? Because when we talk about the 90% that the Falcons had in 2023, that's basically representing, you know, that 10% that was left on the table, left on the bone, was basically two wins away from basically this episode that I'm recording right now should be a crossover episode with Locked on Eagles to get you prepped for this wild card weekend. And when you look at those two games, you can pick any two, but you essentially could easily come up with like a handful of plays, like four plays across two games, your pick, that were the difference between the Falcons making the playoffs and not, right? The Falcons were four and six this year in one score games. They go six and four, they're in the playoffs, right? And you can look at a, you know, several games, Minnesota, Arizona, look at one or two plays. Hey, you tackled Josh Dobbs, you tackle Kyler Murray, you potentially win those games. Minnesota, Taylor Heineke makes that throw in the final minute to set up the potential field goal that can send that game into overtime. You know, Carolina, Desmond Ritter doesn't throw that pick. Uh, that leads to the 95-yard drive by Carolina. You know, Tampa Bay, take your pick, right? Take away the safety. Take away any of Ku's missed field goals, and the end of that game goes very differently, right, where the Falcons are potentially setting up for a, a game-winning field goal to win that game. So you can take your pick, right? But basically what I'm saying is the Falcons were this close. And for the audio listeners, you know, my, my fingers are an inch apart when it comes to how close they were to making the playoffs. And yet I, you know, one of the comments I've, I've seen earlier this week was Arthur Smith was a failure. And it's like clearly how you define failure and how I define failure when you're basically this close to success are different, right? You know, and this is what I talk about when we're talking about scapegoats and being reductive, where I think people like to, you know, Look at those, the Falcons coming up this short and being like, it's this person's fault, whether that's the owner, whether it's the GM, formerly in Rich McKay, Thomas Dimitrov, or the current GM, or the coach. Right? I just think the nature, shortcomings are a nature of football, right? Winning football games is hard. So many things have to go right for you to have success in this sport. That's how the sport works, right? And I don't think a lot of people that follow the sport, whether they're fans or media that cover the sport, really understand that concept on a fundamental level. And let's compare football to other sports like basketball and baseball. Baseball basically a 1v1 sport, pitcher versus batter, right? There's eight other guys on the field, but because of how rare hits are, like 60% of the time or more, right? They don't really matter. They're just taking up space. Like the batter hitting the ball, the pitcher getting a strike has, you know, what the first baseman is doing, just scratching his butt has nothing to do with them. And you look at basketball. Yeah, it's 5v5, but often it transforms into a 1v1 sport, iso ball, right? Basically, you're a player. You can decide, I'm going to take the ball down the court, I'm going to shoot it. And, you know, the, the other, you know, that one guy guarding me has got to deal with it, but the other eight guys on the court, you know, go stand in the corner, right? We saw the late, great Kobe Bryant, basically like, you know, <laughs> I'm get 81. You're not going to stop me. 1v1 game, right? Well, you know, in that case, 1v5. <laughs> he, he, he got everybody uh, uh, in that game. But, um, 
you can't really play that. That's that's a, that's not how football works, right? If you're a ball carrier, you can't just say, I'm gonna just I'm gonna run this to the end zone because you got 11 guys, it's one versus 11, and you need your 10 other teammates to take out at least 10 of those guys so that then you get in the position of a 1v1. Now, there are 1v1 elements in football, wide receiver versus corner or whatever, tackle versus DN. But if you're a wide receiver, you need the offensive line, the five guys on the offensive line to hold up to get the quarterback the time, and you need the quarterback to make the throw in order for you to do your job. It's basically 11 links in the chain. And if one of those links goes wrong, it kind of breaks the whole thing. The whole thing breaks down. And guess what? 10 out of 11, it's about 90%. Right? But, you know, that's part of the reason why we blame a player. But, you know, the more and more you watch football, the more you notice, like, like all these players break down. Right? That's part of the, my job here is to basically tell you which which links in the chain are consistently weak. That's why we need to go upgrade this position. We need to go upgrade this position in the offseason. We need to draft this. We need to sign this, right? But it's just kind of random variability on when those links in the chain weaken, right? And some of the reasons why, like, we don't often see eye to eye on our perspective on this football team is, I think, when those things break down, you know, I think there's a tendency among folks to like think there's like nefarious things going on. Like, for example, Devontae Freeman missing that block in the Super Bowl. And if you watch enough football, you know that running backs blow protections every single game. It happens in every game. But because you can't accept the idea that random variability, basically stuff happens sometime in football, like you have to come up with this convoluted conspiracy uh, like he, you know, he blew that block on purpose or whatever that I've seen so many fans do over the last seven years. Right. You know, and you got 22 players on 130 plays in a given game for 17 games. That's basically meaning that you have nearly 50,000 variables that determine the outcome of a season. And as I just said, you can only control what you can control. And one person being able to control those 50,000 variables doesn't exist at most a single individual a single link in that chain might control 1%, maybe 2% of those variables, you know, given 1,000, 500,000 plays. That's part of the reason why football is a game of inches. Like little things change, tweak one of those variables and it, you get different outcomes. And so until you get that on a fundamental level, I don't think you really understand the sport. And it's why like I don't hold 17 year grudges. It's why I don't get butthurt about games that played years ago. Because I understand a lot of times it's random chaos. It's stuff happens, man. That's life. But like our brains aren't really wired to process 50,000 variables. You know, you know, we got 10 fingers. And so maybe, maybe we can process 10 variables. But for most people, it's so much easier to focus on one. And, you know, I'll get off my soapbox, but I wanted to say that because I like I look at the 90% problem that the Falcons have, and I don't say it's one individual that's holding back the scene. That's basically what I'm saying. It's just like that's just football, man. Sometimes you get 90% of the way there. And you come up short. That's just how the game is. But we'll talk about some of the real reasons behind the downfall of Arthur Smith to sort of wrap up today's Locked on Falcons. Now, it's a new year. And maybe your resolution is to be better prepared in 2024. And especially now during flu season, you know, getting sick can kind of derail things. I myself recently battled uh, with a bout of COVID. But, you know, if you're trying to be in your best preparation, you know, making sure you have access to life-saving medications means something, right? And Jace Medical is here for you, especially now that the FDA has recently talked, released statements about a shortage on antibiotics. And Jace Medical has the Jace case where you get a pack of five different antibiotics that treat a long list, 50 plus bacterial illnesses, including UTIs, 
respiratory sinus infections, so much more. Visit jacemedical.com and a board-certified physician will review what you need and a licensed pharmacy will send you the medications, medications at a fraction of their regular cost. And it's more important now than ever to be prepared today. So go to jacemedical.com and use offer code locked on and you'll get $20 off your order. That's J A S E medical.com promo code locked on for $20 off. So I know some of you guys were looking for the all 22 review this week and it will, we'll get there. It's probably going to come out Saturday. So continue to make us your first list and we'll potentially we'll have Jarvis on. I'll reach out to Jarvis and see his availability to, so he can weigh in on this topic, but let's talk about the downfall of the Smith regime. And, and this stems from a question from the discord from Luke Jones. He asked, Hey Aaron, since we're starting and he asked this before the season finale, say Aaron, since we're staring seven and 10 in the face for a third consecutive season in Arthur Smith era, maybe coming to an end. What were some of the biggest decisions that led to the downfall of this regime? Positional value, zigging lack of investment at quarterback, bad self-evaluations, not filling needs, etc. Um, you know, I, I think probably the overwhelming narrative, the per most pervasive narrative that you're going to see in here, and probably many of you think, is that Arthur Smith got fired because he made a terrible bet on Desmond Ritter, right? And that cost him his job. And while I'm not going to say that was a good bet, I'm not going to say that that wasn't a major contributing factor to why he's out of a job right now. I don't think that's really the real, the real bet that Arthur Smith made that led to his downfall, right? The Falcons basically made the bet on Desmond Ritter because they basically believed that they didn't need elite quarterback play because the engine of this offense would be their run game, right? And so if we're going to be, you know, take a second to be reductive, right? 50% of their problem was the quarterback play and the other 50% was their inability to, their run game letting them down, right? Now, you know, the quarterback play is particularly with the quarterbacks putting the ball in the hard ways. That's both Ritter and Heineke. That consistently was a problem. But you saw significantly regre significant regression from this run game this past season. And we talked about it all offseason, right? You weren't betting on Desmond Ritter being a top 10 quarterback. You were betting on him basically being like the 19th best quarterback in the league. And given the run game, elite run game, and a, a top defense, that was good enough, especially against this schedule, to think that you would make the playoffs. And defense held up their end of the bargain, but the run game did not. Now, when you look at like adjusted net yards per attempt or Anya, right? That 19 figure comes from basically where the Falcons in 21 under Matt Ryan were the 19th most efficient passing game in the league. Now, Ryan as an individual quarterback ranked 18th. In 22, they were the 17th most efficient passing game in the league. Mariota as an individual ranked 22 in the league, right? And so you ask, where did Ritter rank, right? Overall, the Falcons were the 22nd most efficient passing attack in the league, and Ritter was the 23rd ranked quarterback in that metric, adjusted net yards per tip, right? And, you know, you know where Ritter ranked the first time he got benched? He was 20th at that point in the season. So goes back to what I'm talking about, the 90%, right? Like, basically, you got 90% of the way with the quarterback with the, your expectations, or at least my expectations. You know, maybe your expectations were much higher. So, like, you're going to hear me, like, I'm not going to buy into this notion and this narrative that some people will push that Ritter was this utter disaster, right? And I hope you now understand why I'm not going to, because, again, you got 90% of the way there. But let's talk about the let's look at some stats to look at the run game and that's regression throughout the season. Right now, you might look at the yards per game and say, well, we were third in rushing in 22 and we were ninth in 23. How big a drop off is that? But, you know, you guys got to get into the 21st century. There's this thing called the Internet and then you have access to all the knowledge in the world and you can't judge football and volume stats like it's 1996. 
right? You got to look at some of the more advanced metrics that tell the true story because not all yards are created equal, right? You look at DVOA. They were third in rushing in 22. They were 22nd in 23. You look at expected points added or EPA. Depending on what source you look at, but the my preferred source had the Falcons fourth in EPA per rush in 22, 28th in 23. So top five to bottom five in that metric. And you look at success rate, right? And success rate, general success rate, not EPA success rate, but general success rate looks at rushing efficiency on a down distance. It's far superior than yards per carry, right? But by the way, the Falcons were like, I think fourth in yards per carry last year and 16th this year. But, you know, and that's part of the reason why they dropped off because they didn't get the explosive runs. And that's really what EPA is looking at. But you look at success rate. A successful run is a 40% of the yards to gain on first down, 60% on second down, 100% on third and fourth down. And, you know, when it comes to the running game, this is what, these are what you need to get to keep your offense on schedule. And that's basically the point of the running game, right? Because it's a passing league, passing is king, but you, your run game is supposed to supplement your passing attacking and put them in advantageous situations. Falcon success rate in 2022 was 56%, dominant success rate. Dropped off to 46%. And we're just talking about success rate on handoffs to your running backs. Now, 46% is a healthy rushing rate. Anything above 45% is healthy for the run game, but it's still a massive drop off. And you compare that 46% in 23 to the previous years prior to 2022. In 21, that was 43%. In 2020, that was 48%. In 2019, it was 44%. And so essentially, the Falcons' run game in this past season was about as effective as the run game was in the dirt cutter years when they did not have a, a run game that could sustain their offense. Now, in those years, you had Matt Ryan, you had Julio Jones, you had Calvin Ridley, so you could easily pivot when the run game wasn't working. You didn't have that, right? Obviously, you didn't have the, the same caliber of quarterback play. And, you know, no knock on Drake London and Kyle Pitts, but they're not on the level of, of Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley yet. We'll, we'll say that. We'll say that with a caveat. Yeah, maybe they'll get there. We'll see. But the Falcons bet on the run game and quickly realized pretty early on in the season that it wasn't going to be the engine of the offense, and they tried to pivot. I'll give them that credit, right? One of my knocks at, towards the end of the Mike Smith era was they didn't pivot away from how they wanted to play in 2013 and 2014. And that was a downfall of them. But at least Arthur Smith and company recognized that they needed to pivot, and that's why they benched Matt Collins. That's why they traded for Van Jefferson. It didn't work, right? Van Jefferson was a non-factor. But when you go back to success rate, right, you look at how many games in 2022 did they have a success rate of 45% or higher, right? That sort of reliable, successful, healthy run game. 15. How many of those games did they have in 23? Eight. How many games did they have where their success rate was over 60%, which basically meant they were able to dominate the game on the ground. That's what a 60% success rate is telling you. In 22, they had seven of those games. In 23, that was one game. That was the Week 12 game against the Saints. And so the Falcons were basically betting on for a larger chunk of the season that they were going to play like they did against the Saints, where, again, that game was run-heavy, defensive-driven game, right? Getting all those stops in the red zone. And even though the quarterback turned the ball over in that game, it didn't matter because that's what the Falcons were betting on. They were going to be able to play that way consistently all throughout the season, and they were only able to basically do that, like, one time. And then you can, you know, the first Bucks game, you know, they, they got close to it. You know, other games, you know, Packers, et cetera. But, like, that was basically the downfall of this regime. Now, turnovers to me were an issue every single week. But I would probably argue that there was maybe, like, eight games where the, the turnovers really, really were backbreaking for this team. You know? They had to work to overcome it pretty much every other game. But, like, where it was like, man, that really killed us. Those turnovers were really killing us. They really made it hard for us to win that game. But I think there was a basically an equal number of games 
where the run game basically didn't show up to the degree that it needed to be to be the engine of the offense. And so I, I think that regression was due to the block, and we talked about it all year long, right? Three out of the four returning starters on your offensive line were worse run blockers than they were the previous year. Jake Matthews, Chris Lindstrom, Kayla McGarrett. And then Matthew Bergeron was a downgrade from all the revolving door of left guards you had the year before. Basically, Drew Dahl was the only player that maintained, right? Parker has the agenda. You play an outside zone run scheme like the Falcons do, and the Falcons are the most committed team to the outside zone run scheme, you have to have good perimeter blocking from your tight ends. And the Falcons didn't have that this year. They had it last year due to Parker Hesse. They didn't have it because Pitts, Jonu Smith were often liabilities in that regard. And Michael Pruitt for outside of like two or three games was basically, you know, a non-factor and, you know, zero entity, not adding a ton of value, not adding, you know, not taking away a ton of value, but basically, you know, was out there being the first baseman, scratching his butt, not doing anything <laughs> like we talked about in baseball. And so when you talk about the roster moves that the Falcons made, I'm not saying that these were the cause, right? This first example, I'm not saying this was a bad pick, but taking Bijan Robinson was emblematic of that bet that the Falcons were making. And I don't think it was a bad bet. Again, even if you thought the run game would regress a little bit, you know, I don't think you thought they would go from top five to bottom five, You might, top five to 10 or something like that. And that still would have been more than good enough <laughs> for this offense to work this year. And again, I'm not saying that he's the blame, but, you know, the Falcons' decision to sign Mac Hollins as the number two wide receiver was emblematic of this bet that they were making. Because, you know, if you want a blocker, Mac Hollins is your guy. And basically, for most of the season, that's basically what Mac Hollins' role was, especially when the Falcons realized about a month into the season that he wasn't going to be able to provide the things. And that's why you saw Jefferson come in. That's why you saw increased snaps for Scotty Miller and, and Kadero Hodge doing more of the heavy lifting in the passing game because you needed to add more juice and more speed to, to the offense, right? And it's part of the reason why, much to my guy Jarvis Davis's chagrin, wide receiver is going to be potentially a legit option for the Falcons to, to take in the, in the first round of the draft, right? You know, replacing Arthur Smith isn't resolving that issue. That's still an issue, an ongoing issue. That's one of the top needs for this football team. So I hope, Luke, that answers your question. Again, we can go deeper and deeper into this, and I'm sure we will continue to explore this topic in the coming days, weeks, and, and whatnot, months as well. But I hope that answers your question. I, I think ultimately it boils down to, yes, the quarterback play was a problem, but the Falcons bet on the run game and that bet, I don't, again, I don't think that was a bad bet, but it didn't work in their favor. And that's led to, you know, the downfall of Arthur Smith. And, you know, they got 90% of the way there and they, they just couldn't get over that hump. But I hope that, Resolves your question. We'll see if we can, you know, I'll, I'll text Jarvis and see if he's available tomorrow. He can weigh in on his coaching search. Obviously, lots of moving parts. Pete Carroll, Mike Vrabel, right? Nick Saban's going to retire. All the, You know, all these 70-year-old coaches going by the wayside. So we'll see what's what on tomorrow's episode. And please stay in touch for the uh, All-22 review later this week. Continue to make us your first listen. Check out Locked On Sports Today, Locked On Sports Atlanta, 24-7 streaming channel. It's all part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.